We're going to look at Psalm 127. And this is a psalm, I want to call it the psalm for working families. Today being Mother's Day, I would like to share with you from this psalm that I think a lot of us will know quite well. And I have chosen to call it the work, the psalm for working families because the, the, the topics which are covered here in this psalm are amongst other things about work and families. Now this psalm is amongst those that are called the Psalms of Ascent and there are a total of 15 psalms between 120 and Psalm 134 that are grouped together which have this title, uh, a subtitle called the Psalms of Ascent which means, Ascent means going up. Going up where? Going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a hill and the temple was there so people will come from all around the countryside in order for their pilgrimage on three important occasions to celebrate three festivals at the temple every year. So for the people of Israel, this was a public holiday. They would travel to Israel as a family group, mum, dad, the kids, and not only them but also with their cousins and uncles and aunts and everybody. It would be a whole group event that they would do this at least three times a year. So we can picture all these families looking forward to spending time together as a unit, singing and praying as they went, singing some of these these psalms that we are looking at this morning. They will be singing that as a group as they were going up to Jerusalem and praising God. So praise and worship and, and pilgrimage was a very important part of family life and community life in Israel. Now, King Solomon wrote only two psalms. He wrote many proverbs, of course, and Ecclesiastes and, and uh, Song of Songs. But of the psalms, a lot of the psalms were written by his father and this particular only two psalms, Psalms 127 and 72, were written by Solomon. The disappointment is that for someone who started so well his life, given this God-given wisdom that God gave him, when he gave him the choice, he chose wisdom and he started off so well. But as he got older, as he got older, he became stupid. Usually it's the other way around, isn't it? But I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. His own recklessness and his women took him further and further away from God. This is because Solomon ignored his own wise words, the words that God had given him, and he would write about it, he would talk about it, people would come from all over the place to hear about his wisdom, but the very God-given wisdom that was that for which he was renowned for, he himself started to ignore. And ultimately, he stopped depending on God and the rest of the nation followed the ways of the king and they paid the price. How much easier, how much easier it is to 
give advice as a mother, as a father, to teach as a teacher, to preach as a preacher and a pastor, to dish out advice and not to follow it through in your own life. Let me tell you, the words that I share here are hard to live by. I'm first because I'm held to account by what I say, but what I say, they are words from God, but I'm to live by them, but I cannot live even up to the standards by which the Word of God says because I'm a fallen creature, like you or I. But we are held to a higher standard. As they say, you've got to live by what you preach. And we know that many pastors often fall short. We can only do so with God's strength and not make the same mistake that Solomon made. Now this is one of the, those passages of Scripture that touches on three of the most important of human concerns. Achievement, security and family. And he examines these areas and he speaks most of all about our need to trust in God. Not only because life is fragile, but because without him life is futile. So let's start at looking at this psalm. First of all, fruitless efforts from verses 1 and 2, the first part of verse 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Now these first two verses describe for us two big activities that occupy much of our time, building and protecting Areas where many of our efforts will often be challenged. He doesn't call these efforts sinful or rebellious or indeed malicious. He simply calls them vain or futile because if you choose to ignore God's hand, if God is not involved in the whole process, then it will indeed be futile. If all of them are undertaken apart from God, then that will be the result, futility. Now one can understand, one can understand unbelievers, non-believers living like this. One can understand that. But it is tragic, doubly tragic, when believers live this way. Those who call themselves as sons and daughters of God those who call themselves Christians, when they start living like this. Firstly, let's look at building a house. Solomon begins by telling us that unless God builds our house, our efforts in building are in vain. Now surely this is something that we can do for ourselves. Um, there are enough 
builders and contractors that can do a fine job. Why does God need to be part of house building? In any case, surely God is too busy running the universe to be concerned about my puny little building project. Now, this is how we normally think. And while this is part of the process, the actual building, physical building of a house, it's more than that. It's about building a home. The house is the nest. But it, what goes on inside, which is the home. And, and, and many of our project home builders actually use the phrase, or even real estate agents use the phrase, from house to home. This is going to be your home now. Because that's, that's what sells. Solomon was a great builder. And uh, he built a lot of things. Temple, city, the walls. People came from all around the world to watch the wonder and marvel of his projects. He built the house of God. Unfortunately, he didn't do too well in building his home. So what is he telling us here? Priority. Priority is the first thing that he's telling us. The old great Australian dream seems to be for people to own their home. That's the great Australian dream. But it's not just Australian. I think it's the same type of thing in America or in many places of the world as well. And in our days, the only way one can afford a home is, or a house is by earning very good wages and then having both husband and wife going out and working outside the home. Many times this leads to, unfortunately, to neglecting the family which often turns the great dream into a nightmare. For the most part, we know that houses are actually a very good investment for now and for the future. But that needs to be balanced, it needs to be traded, it needs to be offset with how much you value your own family life. Because you see, this is exactly what the rest of the world is pursuing as well. How different is our life from the rest of the world? We are to be different. Jesus was very clear when he said this. He said, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Who are the pagans? The pagans aren't necessarily bad people. They could be good citizens, but pagan means that they they don't have... They don't think about God. They couldn't care less what God thinks about their lives. They just simply live the way that everybody else lives. And your Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But what is our priority? What is our priority? It is His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. 
as well as houses and homes and some of us are, are very blessed, have been very blessed with the things that God has given us and I hope that you are able to recognise that. Never forget it. Priority. What's the next thing? Motives. Let's be honest. Many times the things we have, like a house or a car or even our clothing, rather than a place to live in, something that gets you from A to B and even something that keeps you warm, is more than just that. It becomes a status symbol. So people, what happens? People treat these things because of the brand, the place you live, the size of the place you have, the type of car you drive. It becomes something much more because you have to keep up with the Joneses. If our earthly possessions are that important to us, then our heart is on our treasures and not on God. Our heart is on the gifts, not on the giver. Let me ask you, if tomorrow morning you wake up And everything is taken away from you. Everything. It's happened before. Under different circumstances, could be persecution, change of government, um, or even tragedy upon tragedy like Job. You wake up one morning, bang, bang, bang. If everything is taken away from you, will you trust in God? Will you still come here the following Sunday? You might come very emotional, teary-eyed and everything, but will you still come if God takes everything away from you? The more treasures we have, the more we have to lose. And that brings to the next point. And the more we have to lose, then we want to protect it more and more, which leads to the second problem, it's security. Unless God is your security, unless he is your security guard, then all, it's all in vain. Uh, in the past, cities for thousands of years, how civilizations were built is that a group of people would come together and they would build their houses close up to one another, usually on, on a hill and usually close to a, a fountain of water, a supply of water or to a river, somewhere where they could then put huddle up together in an urban environment and then they would say, look, what we have now, we will start, have to protect it against 
everybody else. So they start building walls and higher walls and higher walls and that's how the kingdoms started getting built. Why? Because of the need for protecting what they have. These walls were a lot of times broken up by watchtowers where soldiers would be stationed to protect the peace and warn the people of impending dangers. Today we have police and paid security guards that patrol our streets and our train stations and our trains. What's more, there are, if you've noticed, there are ever-increasing amount of cameras set up everywhere you go to give us a sense of safety. And I know a camera in an otherwise unoccupied station is not much comfort if you're going to get mugged. Uh, the, The only comfort is that they might actually catch the criminal who did it, but there's no physical protection at that particular point. But also remember that's what's happening in China now, that whatever is used by government to make us feel safer can also be used by government to control movements and behaviours and places of worship and what you do and what you gather in the future. Just remember that. It is interesting that the mere presence, however, of security guards or or even a uniformed policeman elicits some very interesting responses, very different responses. If you are up to no good, then you want to hide and move away from them. If you are somehow caught speeding on, on, a, on a street or on a, on a freeway, accidentally, nobody speeds deliberately, I know that. Not here, not me. Uh, then the presence of a police car will usually be enough to you know, get your foot off the accelerator and sometimes even hit the brake so you can just tap it a little bit so that you're under the speed limit. If you're a law-abiding citizen, however, on a train at 11 o'clock at night, it gives you some comfort to know that they're, they're there for your protection. Rather than running away from the security, you actually want to huddle up next to them and give them a thanks because they are there to keep you safe. When we sin, when we know that we have done something wrong, we try and move away that which has been set up as the law. Let's move it up a bit higher. When we sin, we try and actually move away from the law giver himself, who is God. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They tried to hide. It was an exercise in futility, but that's what they tried to do. That, that tells me that when we live in disobedience, we actually feel the least secure if we persist in disobedience, if we persist in our sin, you're always going to be turning around to see who's watching. Alternatively, we feel the most secure, the most protected 
in God when we are humble and obedient to him and do what pleases him. We have nothing to fear. Another psalm puts the whole issue of security like this. Psalm 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, of the Lord, our God. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Whatever spin they're going to try and throw at you this week, before election time, when we come here next Sunday morning, there is going to be, according to the polls, a new government in charge. Whatever happens, are we able to say, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, no matter what happens. We will do what, is, what we are able to do and, and, and be responsible But whoever gets elected, we we need to be able to say we will not trust in man. We will continue to trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Whatever happens. I hope that you and I can do the same. Now, the next issue is overwork. Solomon, the king, King Solomon, spoke much in Proverbs, as you read Proverbs, you, you can see that he says quite a lot about the sluggard, the lazy person, uh, the person who really doesn't want to get up in the morning to do his bit, who doesn't want to work. In fact, more than that, he sponges off everybody else because that's the way he is. Now, since the beginning of time, there have always been those who do nothing except take advantage of the initiative and hard work of others. While there are those who toil hard in the sun to plant to plant a field and, and weed it and then harvest it, there are those who work hard to fight against the elements in order to grow a crop. And then there are those who party all night who couldn't care less to wake up in the morning and then simply get there, get on a horse or camels as it used to happen in the old days and then ransack somebody else's sacrifice. Heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Just because they know it's harvest time, it's time to collect and take advantage of somebody else's sacrifice. You look around... And even in a prosperous country like Australia, we see a lot of that happening. But here in verse 2, he addresses the opposite problem when he says, In vain you rise and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Man is meant to work, but after the fall... And work actually has been designated to Adam and Eve even before the fall, but after the fall, God has put a curse on our labour. That's in Genesis 3. Both man and woman live under the curse. A woman suffers, in the English language, 
labour pains when delivering a baby and in the traditional model, a man suffers labour pain when he goes out to toil and provide for his family. Obviously, today, like I said before, both husband and wife need to go out to work. But the labour pains is, is, is more than just more than just providing or even delivering. It's actually bringing up these little bundles of joy through life, from infancy to teenagehood and then to youth. The, the, you discover very early on that total depravity affects everybody. Reality is that hard work is out there and hard work is in the home. The disciplining, the educating, the tears, the joy, the pain of what it is to set up a home. And then, as Christians, we are called to care for those who are struggling. So their tears become our tears as we help one another as well. But you see, when we are consumed by the work out there, it will start to consume our family and our spiritual life as well. When our commitments cause us to get up very early and sleep very late, then it will start to have tremendous repercussions in other areas as well. I have seen it happen and so have you. This is why Solomon says it is in vain. Now, all of us know that there will be seasons when we have to work doubly hard to get the job done and meet a deadline. But if this is the norm on a regular day, day in, day out, week after week, year after year, then it has gone beyond the limits that God has set for it. And, and it is very difficult, I know, to, to be able to, to swim against the strong current in our society to, to step aside and say, I'm, I'm just not going to be a pawn of this type of life. We must set boundaries. And I know it's difficult, particularly when we have 24-hour shifts, when we have companies working seven days a week. Gone is the old... Saturday, midday, everything closes up. Remember those days? When, when people forget about gathering together regularly in the house of God. And let's not even start talking about smartphones, which we are finding out are not very smart. Someone said that when, our, when telephones were tied to a cable, man was free. Now that the phone is mobile, man is tied to the phone. Follows you everywhere you go. When I grew up in Paraguay in a small village, there was one telephone in the whole village. One telephone. 
Hey, your aunt is going to call tomorrow, okay? So you must come. Here, 2 o'clock, okay? So you line up. Everybody lines up at 2 o'clock because somebody was going to call from another city or from overseas on that phone. Remember those days? Yeah? Yeah. We need to heed God's word in this very important aspect of our lives. To be able to set boundaries and be very diligent about it. And then we move from efforts to gifts from verse 2 second part of verse 2 to verse 5. Now, I want to say from efforts, those are the things that we do, the things that we earn to the things that are given to us. These are what gifts are. A gift is something that we have received without having laboured or having earned it. That is what God offers us, not just here in this psalm, but it is included in his providential care for us each and every day. He is the sustainer. He is the gift giver. So what does he offer? First of all, in the second part of verse 2, is rest. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Remember, gifts are those things that we have earned. No. Gifts are those things that we deserve? No. Gifts are those things that have been graciously given to us by someone else. Yeah. So when your boss comes to you and says, look, here is, is a gift for all the work you've done you know, over these years, it's not a gift. It's, it's a recognition of the work that you've done. You've earned it. So, it's strictly speaking, it's not a gift. It's, it's nice to be recognised. Now, if he comes out of nowhere and says, I've got this gift for you, then it might be different. Our rest, our rest is a gift from God. We haven't earned it, it is his gift to us. Now, this theme of rest comes from Genesis all the way to Revelations in the Scriptures. It's a big word, the word rest, and it's for good reason. There is, a, there is a good reason why from the moment of creation God created the day and he created the night when no work can be done. From the very beginning God has established the principle of rest. Even prior to the fall there was a boundary set for the day and a boundary set for the night. We work during the day, we rest at night. And God told man to rest on the Sabbath as well because God rested on the seventh day, not only for his physical need but also for his spiritual feeding, his spiritual well-being to keep himself in focus. God has established the Sabbath as a time for spiritual reflection, for worship, there have been governments who have attempted in the past to, rather than move, move away from the 
the seven day week cycle, they have moved to the, the ten day cycle. So that there was, we can extend it. So forget about rest, we're just going to continue to work. It hasn't worked. Man needs time to worship God because he's not only a physical being but also a spiritual being. It is he who grants us rest. I don't know if you've come across people who at night are simply unable to sleep for whatever reason. We call them insomniacs. And it's actually, it's actually draining because they're not able to simply rest at night. And it's a sad condition. They take pills for it, they, they go through different medications just to, so that the, the, the body's able to, to recover and reset itself. Sleep is a wonderful thing. And as a South American, I can tell you that even the siesta is a wonderful invention by by the Spanish. But let's not go there. Those who sleep the siesta actually delay everything and they go to bed like one, two o'clock in the morning. So that's not if you're going to do that. Rest is a wonderful gift from God. Secondly, children, verse 3. That's another gift. Sons are heritage from the Lord, children are reward from him. At, at first it appears that there is this drastic change, a movement between verse 2 and verse 3, and, and that there is no connection, but there is actually a connection because the first two verses speak of man's efforts, working hard to get ahead and so on, you know, and, and you work ahead and, and work harder so that you can retire and then finally rest. Yet, it is the Lord who gives you rest. And better still, it is the Lord who provides children. Why? Because children are a gift from God. I like the NASB translation a little bit better because rather than heritage, it actually uses the word gift. Gift. An interesting point that needs to be made here is that children while given by God, are generally conceived while we are at rest. Not when we toil. I don't think I need to give any explanations there. Which connects it to the statement of verse 2. This is, I think, is is a wonderful illustration of the way that God has designed things, hasn't it? It's him. He's the one that does it. God gives. Just again, we go back to highlight just how messed messed up we are when we have reversed the value of things described in this psalm. On the one hand, some parents virtually worship their children. They keep them up in bubble wrap and they do everything. Oh, my little darlings and everything else. And they, they, they worship them, especially in this day and age. You who are teachers, you know what I'm talking about. Those little darlings can't do anything wrong. On the other hand, 
We have come to view children's, some have come to view children's such a burden that work and careers have become the principal means of finding fulfilment and security. This is evidence in the increasing abortion rate and the delay in having children. Last year, Australia had 75,000, just under 75,000 abortions, the whole country. And when children do come, their care is often given over, given over to, to others. It is interesting, isn't it? Because in this election, particularly one of the big promises given by government is more childcare facilities, before and after school care. Increasingly, 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 and I know there is a need, I know we, this is the way the society is going, but increasingly the government is taking over the care and education of the children, of the family. You need to keep your eye out for this. I know, I know that the, we have to pay for the home and we have so many bills and we're going to pay for this, we're going to pay for that. More childcare facilities... And Paul, you're just carrying on, you, you sh- shut up, okay, because this is the way you're just going to accept it. No, we don't have to accept it. We can actually step aside and make choices and say, it doesn't have to be like this. You and I have a choice to make. Also think, you, you just think, I'll just mention a number, 75,000 abortions and only 225 adoptions in all of Australia. There is something seriously wrong in our society. It is sick. It is sick. How many childless couples who by so many means have tried to conceive and and would be more than willing to go through the process but it takes years to adopt It's just so difficult. The Lord, for some reason, has withheld. He has closed the womb. This is what I'm saying again. It is the Lord who gives, but it is also the Lord who withholds. withholds. And sometimes, even after our kids are born, it is also the Lord who takes away. Remember that. Life is in his hands. Please, please accept that. And dignity, verses 4 to 5. Let's look at dignity. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Again, God freely provides us with the very thing for which men strive in vain. Man struggles to build a house, but by giving us children, God builds our home. The watchman stands guard to provide security and protection, but what God gives provides a greater security by comparing our children to, to arrows in the hands of a warrior. These are the weapons that he has. 
So God's ideal is that we have children when we are younger, when our strength is, is, is there. We know that this is not what happened with Abraham, with Zechariah, but it is part of God's original plan. The city gate, the city gate, and when we went to Israel, we could see some of these old uh, remnants of past civilizations where the city gate was, was an important place, not just where people came and went, one central point, but the city gate, there was a little alcove, a little room inside the city gate where business was transacted and administered. And the Old Testament speaks many times about the, the fact that we need to be able, as a society, to care for the widows and orphans because they are often the most vulnerable in a society. A widow, many times in those days, was somebody who had lost a husband in war. War was part of life. Everybody went to war. And then your sons go to war. Who's going to provide for the family? For the widows and the orphans. The wonderful story of Ruth is a case in point, isn't it? The thought is that many children will eventually look after their ageing parents. It's not just the children who turn up at the reading of the will to see how mum and dad are. The children saw that the parents are treated with respect and honesty and justice and protect them for those who, from those who would take advantage of them. This is God's plan. In conclusion, do you see the point of the psalm? In his grace, God has provided man with a time of rest and relaxation. The man who puts too much emphasis in his labour is the man who has failed to understand God's grace. In his grace, God has made provision for our needs through the gift of children. And this goes against the popular thought because God's gifts are not acquired by working harder. Rather, they are gifts given by a gracious giver. And we appreciate, we are thankful for what is given to us by not just saying thank you, but by living obedient lives as an act of grace, as, as, as saying, Lord, thank you. I will follow your statutes. I will follow what you told me to do. This is how I'm going to express my love to you, by resting in his grace. And this psalm for working families takes us back to God's original plan for our lives as a family unit. And yes, we see so many moves to break this up. And while the process of trying to break up a family has already started, through the working hours and the commitments and financial commitments and otherwise, remember, it is God who protects. It is God who provides. And the last thing I want to say is that when you come to your senior years and you look back, one of the, the things that you can be truly thankful for 
is look back and say, Lord, thank you for looking after my family. And then you will recognise that your life has not been lived in what? In vain. You will see the fruits of your labour and rather than seeing the effort and the sacrifice and all of that, you will see the hand of God at every step. And you are able to say, thank you, Lord, for the life I've lived. And then the Lord will welcome you home in your final resting place. Heaven. Let us remember not to worship the gifts, but rather the wonderful giver of these gifts. And that is our Lord Almighty. Amen. Let us sing.